And this morning, we're going to be examining verses 8 through 13. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8. Follow along as I read. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The absence of love in a family is a heartbreaking thing. We've all seen this, maybe experienced it on our own. We all know the pain of being around a selfish person, perhaps an abusive person, a domineering person. And we know the, the heartache of children that have had to endure that type of an environment. And what happens typically then is people who have a loveless home bring that lack of love into the church. And they become skilled in their hypocrisy. They have the big smiles, the religious rhetoric, They sing the hymns, they teach the Sunday school classes, perhaps they preach. But in reality, they're living by the flesh, not by the power of the Spirit. So love really isn't there, at least as it should be. And unfortunately, this was what was going on in Corinth. As it goes on at Calvary Bible Church at times. People bring their lack of love and all the chaos and confusion and heartache from their family. They bring it into the church. And then along with this, they allow the culture to shape them. And little by little, they're being conformed by the world rather than transformed by the renewing of their mind. And agape love is virtually non-existent. Beloved, if love covers a multitude of sins, a lack of love causes a multitude of sins. And with that background, you will be reminded of what was going on in Corinth and what can go on in every church when love is absent. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at, first of all, the value of love in the first three verses, and then the virtues of love in verses four through seven. And now today, we will finish up this chapter by looking at the victory of love in verses eight through 13. Now, I want you to bear in mind that Paul here is not only trying to help them see, and by extension all of us see, what love does and does not do. But he 
is also trying to, trying to contrast the temporary and partial nature of the spiritual gifts with the permanent and perfect nature of love. Now, you will recall that the Corinthians were infatuated with the spiritual gifts, especially speaking in tongues. So even those who did not have the legitimate gift of speaking in a foreign language that they had never learned, they would make up their own version of tongues with the ecstatic gibberish called glossolalia, and we see that even to this day. They were longing to get other people to look at them, to show off. So they were big on spiritual gifts, but not big on love. Agape love, remember, that is that self-sacrificing love, that affectionate disposition that seeks the good of others' welfare over your own welfare, even when the other person does not deserve it. Sometimes it's called unconditional love, unmerited love. However, I want you to be careful with that concept of unconditional love. Sometimes we can see that as some kind of a a passive compassion that just puts up and tolerates anything and everything. But beloved, agape love is active. You might even say it is aggressive. God's love for us as you know, pursued us. It called us, it saved us, it sanctified us, it transformed us. And it's continuing to work in our life. In progressive sanctification, we see his love continuing to shape us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until one day we are perfected in glory. So God's love does not merely tolerate us does not merely just kind of put up with us, regardless of what we do, as if it's some kind of a a static, passive virtue. But rather, his love is active. It is aggressive. It is constantly changing us. Moreover, according to Romans 5, beginning in verse 3, God's love that resulted in our justification causes us to, quote, exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And folks, it is this active, aggressive agape that causes us to love God and to love others. So it is a very active love. And if that's not all, this love will continue to be lavished upon us in increasing ways throughout eternity, causing us to experience ever-increasing joy without limits, as we will discuss later. So be careful when you use the term unconditional love. Never think of it as some kind of a passive virtue, but rather an active, aggressive adoration, one that is sovereignly ordained by God and divinely empowered to take us to ever-increasing heights of ecstasy, even throughout eternity. So he begins this section with a powerful summary statement. Notice in verse 8, he says, Love never fails. 
comes from a little, little Greek verb, pipto. It means literally never falls to the ground. And it is used in, in Greek literature to describe um, even a leaf falling to the ground and disintegrating. It, it, it's used in a literal, even in a metaphorical sense. And it's often, it often has the idea with it of, 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 of collapsing or falling apart. So he's saying here that love never suffers ruin, if I can put it that way. It never withers, it never decays, it never disintegrates, it never goes out of existence. Love is permanent. Now, Paul is not speaking here of love's triumphs or disappointments. I mean, think about it. Jesus was love incarnate, yet he was rejected, he was murdered. And often our love is met with, with indifference, with rejection. What Paul is referring to here is that by nature, love endures. Love lasts forever. It transcends rejection. It outlasts all of the disappointments, unlike some of the spiritual gifts, as we are going to see, that are going to be abolished and the gift of tongues that will cease on its own accord. Because God is love, we are united to him through faith in Christ. And, and our life is, frankly, an eternal expression of his love. 1 John four sixteen, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. <clears throat> and, of course, you remember that great passage in Romans 8, beginning, beginning in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, or sword. He goes on to say, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, having established the permanence of love, Paul then makes a stark contrast to the impermanence of three spiritual gifts, which are really representative of all of the gifts. Notice, they are prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. Now, mind you, this was an intentional blow to the Corinthians, who were obsessed with the showy gifts, in contrast to their absence of love. Notice he says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And you will recall the gift of prophecy is a reference to that divine enablement to proclaim the word of God. And he says that's going to be done away. Katargeo is the term in the original language. It's a very strong verb, and it means to abolish. It means to come to an end, to be inactivated. In our vernacular, we might say, to pull the plug, to become inoperative or useless. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 28, it's translated nullify. There it speaks of, of how God will nullify the arrogant wisdom of man and so forth. So the point is, there is a day that is coming when the gift of preaching will be abolished. It will be done away. And notice at the end of verse 8, he says the same fate's going to befall the gift of knowledge. He says... If there is knowledge, it will be done away. The gift of knowledge 
may have been revelatory in the beginning of the church age, but it was primarily the ability to understand and to apply the mysteries of divine revelation. It, too, is going to be abolished. It's going to become inoperative, inactivated, useless. Now, when will the gifts of prophecy and knowledge, again, that are representative of the other gifts, when are they going to end? Well, he says in verse 10, when the perfect comes. Well, what is the perfect? And when is it coming? Well, let's examine what Paul says. Look at verses 9 and 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So let's break this down a little bit. Notice the first phrase, for we know in part. Now think about it. Although we have the all-sufficient word of the living God, our ability to understand and to apply the mysteries of divine revelation is limited. We, we know only a minuscule portion of the whole, and only a fool would say otherwise. Paul cautioned the arrogant Corinthians, as you will recall in 1 Corinthians 8, 2. He says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Now, we can know all that God has revealed to us, but God has not revealed all there is to know. And this is why at the end of, of uh, Romans uh, 11, Paul breaks forth in that great doxology and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And you will recall that God humbled Job. I love that story. Remember when he answered Job out of the whirlwind when Job got a little cocky? Job 38, beginning in verse 4, God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Kind of puts a stop to the whole deal right there, right? He doesn't let up. Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were, it, were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Well, you get the point. So to be sure, God has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And we know that his word is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3. But what he hasn't revealed to us about his person and his works will require an eternity to unveil. So I rejoice that the Spirit has revealed to us what he has revealed to us in his word, so we can have, as Paul says in Colossians 2, 2, a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. But even with all of this, what we know is woefully elementary. Because only in him, Paul goes on to say, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, likewise, he says, we prophesy in part. Now, we, we are spiritually gifted to proclaim the, the unsearchable riches of Christ, but what we're able to proclaim is inadequate. It's only partial. Indeed, by their very nature, they, they are unsearchable. They are unfathomable. 
We can be gifted to preach or gifted to teach, but we only have a limited knowledge and limited abilities. Likewise, with all of the gifts. That's Paul's point. But Paul makes it clear, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The perfect, te teleon in the original language, it means, te teleon means, means perfect, it means um, mature, it can be translated complete, a state of perfection. And here it conveys the final destiny of God's predetermined plan and purposes, that state of being perfected, completed, without defect, without blemish. So when will that be? When's that going to happen? Well, some say that it happened at the completion of the canon of Scripture. But if you look at this whole text, in, in, in what way do we now enjoy a face-to-face -face vision of God? 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Or know fully, just as I have been fully known. We, we, that, that, so that can't be. Some will say, well, that's going to happen at the rapture of the church. But that would mean that the gifts of knowledge and prophecy would be inoperative during both the tribulation and the millennial kingdom, which is a direct contradiction of Scripture. I mean, think about it. The gifts of knowledge and preaching are going to be widespread during the tribulation. God's going to seal 12,000 of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to seal them. He's going to protect them. They're going to preach the gospel. And it will result in a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. People are going to come to faith in Christ. Likewise, the, knowledge, the gifts of knowledge and, pre and, and preaching or prophecy will be operative during the kingdom. We see that, for example, in Isaiah 11, where the prophet says, For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in chapter 29, verse 18, On that day the deaf shall hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. So it, the, 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 the perfect can't be related to those things. Well, what about the second coming of Christ? Some say that that's when it's going to happen. But the perfect cannot be a reference to Christ, Christ himself at his second coming, because in the original language, in the Greek, teleon is neuter. So it can't refer to a person. So the best explanation, I would humbly argue, is that the perfect that is coming is a reference to the believer's entrance into the presence of the Lord during the eternal state, when the Lord comes and takes us to himself. At that moment, the partial shall be done away. This also fits Paul's statement in verse 12, but then face to face, he says. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. You see, at that point, there will be no need for the gift of knowledge in the eternal state because we're suddenly in the presence of the living God. I mean, think about it. What, what need is there to shed light on a subject when you're suddenly part of the subject itself? What need is there to light a torch when you're standing in the sunlight? There's no need. Our current knowledge and prophecy can be likened to a PowerPoint presentation describing the person and works of God. Who needs that when you're standing in the presence of God? You know, a picture is worth a thousand words. 
but it's a meaningless waste of time if suddenly you're part of the picture. So the gifts are all temporary. They're partial. They're imperfect. And when the perfect comes, in other words, when we enter into the presence of the Lord, they're going to be abolished. They're going to be unnecessary. They will yield to that which is perfect, that which is mature, that which is complete, a state of eternal uh, perfection. Well, what about the coveted gift of tongues? Well, we see in verse 8, it says, if there are tongues, they will cease. Now, notice, it does not say they will be done away. Not katargeo, abolish, be done away with. Instead, instead it says they will cease on their own. Pausantai, grammatically, it's an interesting verb. It's in, this is technical, but it's called the indirect middle voice. It means that something is going to cease from its own activity. And whenever it's used of, of, of objects, it indicates reflexive, uh, self-causing action. In other words, there is a built-in internal kill switch. I remember my Greek instructor, Daniel B. Wallace, and he translated the phrase, cease of their own accord. In fact, he goes on to say it means die out without an intervening agent. Paul does not speak about tongues being done away when the perfect comes. The implication may be that tongues were to have died out of their own before the perfect comes. By the way, since this is a debatable and exegetically significant text, if you're interested in opposing views and why I would argue that this is the proper view, I would encourage you to read Daniel B. Wallace's monumental work, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, an exegetical syntax of the New Testament. So, Paul says, if there are tongues, they will cease of their own accord. They're they're going to stop by themselves. The Energizer Bunny battery, if you will, is going to run out. Prophecy and knowledge will come to an end by an outside force, but the gift of tongues will cease on their own. Now, it's interesting. Prophecy and knowledge are said to end, quote, when the perfect comes. But will you notice the ceasing of tongues on their own accord is not mentioned in relation to the coming of the perfect. And by implication, we might say that they are going to peter out before the eternal state. Now, the question is, when, when did they cease on their own? Well, I believe the best answer is sometime during the apostolic age. Paul makes no connection with tongues ceasing when the perfect comes and the partial shall be done away, as I said. The temporary sign gift of tongues vanish from the biblical record even during the lives of the apostles. And it doesn't reappear during church history except in some strange and bizarre ways for intermittent periods of time. If I can digress for a moment, it's fascinating when you think about it. The gift of tongues is mentioned 22 times in 1 Corinthians, but it is never mentioned again in any of the New Testament epistles nor is it spoken of to any of the other churches, nor is it mentioned in 2 Corinthians. Apparently, the problem was was corrected by the time Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. It wasn't ever mentioned in the listing of the spiritual gifts in Romans 12. Of course, Romans was written after his epistles to the Corinthians. Moreover, tongues ceased because it was 
an inferior means of edification, even when it was properly interpreted. You will recall in 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of prophecy or preaching is far superior, Paul says. Nowhere else in the New Testament is there ever a hint of tongues being practiced. Remember, the gift of tongues was a sign gift. The, the, the gifts of healing and miracles were also a sign gift. What were they assigned to? Well, they, they were pointing to something. They were there to confirm the word of God and the messengers of the word. The word of God given by Jesus and the apostles. They were given to confirm the authority and doctrine of Jesus and the apostles. But once the New Testament was completed, there was no need for any further authentication. But we must also remember, according to Isaiah chapter 28, beginning in verse 11 and, and verse 12, we see that tongues was a judicial sign to Israel, a sign of judgment. In fact, Paul reiterated in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So tongues were a sign to unbelieving Israel, not to believers. And that judgment, we know, fell upon the Jews in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple. That ended the, the sacrificial system, ended the Jewish priesthood. And this happened some 15 years after Paul wrote the epistle to the Corinthians. So a sign of impending judgment upon Israel would have been unnecessary. The judgment had already come. And once Israel rejected her Messiah and his kingdom, according to Hebrews 6.6, 6, it was impossible to renew them again to repentance. What happened is they rejected their Messiah with, with full knowledge of the truth. And they concluded that he deserved to be crucified. This was a heartbreaking burden. To the writer of Hebrews, for example, in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 3, he says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed, underline that in your mind, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The term confirmed in the original language is in the past tense, indicating that the signs and the wonders and the miracles had already ceased. And what's interesting is the epistle of the of Hebrews was written as early as 67 or, or 68 AD, well before the end of the apostolic age. So there's indication that they had already petered out. You might ask, well, well what about after any of that down through history? John MacArthur adds some excellent historical analysis of tongues after the end of the apostolic age. He says this, the gift of tongues has evidently ceased because since the apostolic age it has reappeared only spasmodically and questionably throughout 19 centuries of church history. The gift of tongues is nowhere alluded to or found in any writings of the church fathers. Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the Corinthian church in the year 95 only about four decades after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. In discussing problems in the church, Clement made no mention of tongues. Apparently, both the use and misuse of that gift had ceased. 
Justin Martyr, the great church father of the second century, visited many of the churches of his day, yet in his voluminous writings, he never mentions tongues. It is not mentioned even among his several lists of spiritual gifts. Origen, a brilliant church scholar who lived during the third century, makes no mention of tongues. In his polemic against Celsus, he explicitly argues that the sign gifts of the apostolic age were temporary and were not exercised by Christians of his day. Chrysostom, perhaps the greatest of the post-New Testament writers, lived from 347 until 407. Writing on 1 Corinthians 12, he states that tongues and the other miraculous gifts not only had ceased, but could not even be accurately defined. And folks, even if we look at Augustine, In his comments, for example, on Acts 2 and verse 4, here's what he said. In the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell on them that believed and they spoke with tongues. These were signs adapted to that time. For there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit. That thing was done for betokening and it passed away. And he went on to say for over 1,800 years, the gift of tongues MacArthur goes on to say, for over 1,800 years, the gift of tongues, along with other miracle gifts, was unknown in the life and the doctrine of the church. Now, it's interesting. During the 17th and the 18th centuries, we see sparks of tongues in some of the cults, uh, like some of the Roman Catholic uh, groups in, in Europe. Um, the, you remember the, the Shakers of New England? Some of them moved down here to Kentucky. Mormons. Uh, in the 19th century, you see it in, with a, a few followers of, of a guy named Edward Irving, the Irvingites. Uh, he, was a, he was a deposed Scottish Presbyterian minister who believed that Jesus had a sin nature and so forth. He, was, he founded the Apostolic Catholic Church. And then, but, but other than that, you just don't see it. And all of that, of course, was phony. And then as we've examined in previous sermons... Uh, a phony version of ter- tongues uh, resurfaced around the, 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 at the turn of the 20th century with Charles Fox Parham, uh, a, a teacher in the Methodist holiness movement, uh, which sparked the modern Pentecostal movement. Um, then the Charismatics latched onto it in the 1960s, and, and it spread like wildfire through uh, the Roman Catholic Church, through many Protestant denominations. Churches that were looking for something sensational to give life to their spiritually dead faith through emotional experiences. Bottom line, dear friends, I believe the true supernatural ability to speak in a foreign language that a person had never learned ceased on its own accord by the end of the apostolic age. Now, back to Paul's point here. Paul's purpose is is not what I was doing in my digression. I hope you understand that. His point here is not to give a definitive treatment on how long the gifts would continue in the church age. I mean, the Corinthians, they they wouldn't have been interested in that. They wouldn't have known what he was talking about. What Paul is concerned about is this. Look, Corinthians, you are prizing the wrong things. When you enter into the presence of God's glory and see Christ Face to face, none of these spiritual gifts that you prize so highly are even going to exist. They're going to be unnecessary. What is partial is going to become complete. What is far more important is love. 
a virtue, a, vir, a virtue you obviously don't prize. So let's get our priorities straight. That's what he's saying. So the gift of tongues will cease on their own accord, he says, which they did shortly after Paul wrote this epistle. And the spiritual gifts represented by the gifts of knowledge and prophecy are going to be abolished. And again, verse 9, he says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. It's amazing. The perfect is going to render the imperfect and the partial unnecessary. And what Paul is going to go on to do is give two illustrations to demonstrate what he's saying in verses 11 through 12. Notice the first illustration. It's an analogy of childhood and adulthood. In verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with the childish things. Now, let's think about this for a moment. How do children speak? With poor grammar, poor syntax, a very limited vocabulary, I mean, early on, they learn what? Mama, dada, nana, papa, and no, right? They, that, that's kind of the extent of it. The other day, my little granddaughter had a bug bite, and we were saying, oh, honey, let me see that. She says, well, it's getting better now because mama put some appointment on it. Okay. It's like the little boy who believed that Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Or... You know, Samson slew the Philistines with the acts of the apostles. You know, it's that type of thing. That's how kids think and talk. So he says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child. And he said, think like a child. Well, how does a child think? Well, very narrowly, very elementary. A child doesn't stop to think that drinking the bathwater might not be a good idea. He doesn't stop to think that flushing his little sister's teddy bear down the floor, down the toilet, might have a bad outcome. They don't think that way. And how, do, how does he goes on to say, and I, you know, I, I, I would reason like a child. Well, how does a child reason? Well, once again, very poorly, very elementary. Like the little boy that thought Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. You know, that's how they reason. Uh, or the, the epistles were the wives of the apostles. You've heard that one. Um, little Pepper the other day, my little granddaughter was trying to, she was asking me, and I may have told you this, how, how did Jesus get into your heart? I mean, they just, they just can't reason those things. Now, the clumsy, elementary, and limited nature of speech, thinking, and reasoning are to be expected with a child, but not with an adult. And as we reach adulthood, our childish limitations and those imperfections gradually give way to maturity and completeness and wisdom. And this is Paul's point. His, Paul, his point is simply this. The spiritual gifts that you crave are clumsy, they're elementary, they're limited in comparison to the perfect. We are all restricted by a myriad of limitations and imperfections. And even with the knowledge that we have of the Word of God, it's greatly limited. Even with the gift of preaching, our speech is incomplete. It is encumbered by the inadequacies of our flesh and our mind and so forth. 
So in his comparison between childhood and adulthood, he demonstrates the difference between the present imperfections and the future perfections. He uses another illustration here of looking in a mirror. Notice verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. My New American Standard says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. The King James Version says now we, we, we see, it uses the word darkly instead of dimly. Enigmatai in the original language, we get our word enigma from that. It means indistinct or abstruse or, or obscure, an obscure thing. And unfortunately, we tend to think of this as looking in a mirror that has poor quality, that, it, that is kind of smudgy and smoky and, you know, the ancient mirror that you, you just can't really see. It's kind of dark and you just don't get a good image of, of what you're looking at that. But such a thought, dear friends, would have been a huge insult to the Corinthians because Corinth was famous for their highly polished bronze mirrors that gave a very accurate reflection. The issue here, I believe, is not that we see a distorted image of God and his, and, and his, his person, his works, because we're looking into a mirror of inferior quality. But, but I believe the issue here is the indirect nature of what we see. I mean, I have beautiful pictures of my wife, for example, on my cell phone. But that's nothing to compare with seeing her face to face, right? You know, are the pictures that we have can be accurate, they can be clear, but they're partial, they're incomplete, they're indirect. He says, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Now, obviously, this is not referring to when we get to heaven, we're going to be omniscient. I mean, we're going to keep learning throughout eternity. But think about this. How does God know us? He knows us face to face. He knows us without limits. He knows us better than we know ourselves. I think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all. Now, folks, let this sink in. In the eternal state, we will have intimate, direct, face-to-face knowledge of the triune God that rivals his intimate knowledge of us. 1 John 3 and verse 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Theologians down through the centuries have called this the beatific vision. In other words, one day we are going to feast our souls on the visible presence of the living God. Absolutely astounding. Beloved, this is the blessed hope. 
to enjoy the infinite beauty and love of God forever. This is why when Paul was speaking to Titus, he said that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. I hope you're looking for that blessed hope. If you're not, there's something terribly wrong with your faith, if it exists at all. Jonathan Edwards said, How good is God that he has created man for this very end, to make him happy in the enjoyment of himself, the Almighty, who was happy from the days of eternity in himself, that he might make them blessed blessed in the beholding of his excellency and might this way glorify himself. You see, today we can see much of the glory of God, can't we? In his word, in his creation, in his church, in his people. But what we see is only indirect. It's only secondhand, shall we say, reflections and interpretations. That's nothing compared to what it will be like to see him face to face, to be in his presence. I can't even imagine what it will be like to have an accurate, complete, perfect knowledge of God and his glory. I mean, think about it. In heaven, there will no longer be any need for a Bible. There will no longer be any preaching. Who said amen? Basically, what he's saying to the Corinthians and to all of us, folks, grow up. Stop craving that which is imperfect, that which is indirect, that which is temporal. Learn to love. In verse 13, he goes on, he says, But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, I fear that we tend to interpret this verse in a way that eliminates the existence of faith and hope in the eternal state. And I know, we, I've, I've heard this before, I've probably even said this, and, and maybe in some of my own ignorance, I don't believe this, as you will see, but, you know, faith becomes sight, so faith will no longer be needed, you know, that type of thing. Uh, we won't need hope, hope is going to become a reality, so we will no longer anticipate anything. But love, well, that's going to last forever. Well, may I challenge that interpretation? I believe all three of these Christian virtues will exist throughout eternity. Let me tell you why. He says, but now. I believe this can be translated, and certainly it can be translated as a logical assertion. But now, these three remain. In other words, out of all of the gifts and experiences Paul has discussed and contrasted, these three virtues are going to remain throughout eternity. Let's think of faith, for example. Why would our simple, childlike faith in our Heavenly Father suddenly end when we enter into his presence? You ever thought about that? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, of things not seen, is that, is that, is that just going to all of a sudden suddenly stop? Will we not continue to trust in God's everlasting grace throughout eternity? Of course we will. Well, what about hope? To be sure, our hope in heaven will not waver as it does today. But dear Christian, 
Hope can only end if God is finite. And God is infinite. Are we to assume that the infinite joys of heaven and knowledge of our infinitely glorious God will be completed the moment we see Christ face to face? There, we have it all, all at one time. Or will we have an ever-increasing understanding of his ineffable perfections and an ever-increasing experience of his wondrous love? I believe so. We read earlier, Psalm 16, verse 11, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Folks, this is why heaven will not be boring. Someone has once said, your worst day in heaven will be your first. Because of this, dear friends, I believe hope will continue. We will have an ever-increasing expectation and breathless adoration of what's next. What's going to be the next treasure that he's going to reveal to us? What further ecstasies of delight is he going to lavish upon us? What else are we going to see and experience? New galaxies, new species, new colors, new sounds, new smells, new music, new realities, new dimensions, new laws of physics, new feelings, and a new heaven and a new earth. Will we not anticipate infinite newness of incomprehensible enchantments and delights? Of course we will. Folks, do we not long for this today with a confident expectation? You think that's just going to end? we see Christ, that's all over? We long to embark upon this, this endless journey where, where, where God will reveal to us an ever-increasing understanding and experience of the mysteries of his creation that is so far beyond what we can even imagine and what we can see in our limited way with our telescopes. Don't you long to experience an ever-increasing intimacy with the lover of our soul? Beloved, the perfections of God's glories are infinite, and thus our joy will increase throughout eternity and never reach a place of saturation. And in this we trust, and in this we we hope, we anticipate. Love and joy will increase throughout the endless ages. And to think that he has done this, for a bunch of hell-deserving sinners. Incomprehensible. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So he says, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Because, dear friends, it is the love of God that existed in eternity past. It is the love of God that united the triune Godhead together perfectly, forever. I shouldn't say it united. It was already there. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. 
And it's because of the love of God that all of these things are possible. That's why the love of God is the greatest. It's because of his love that we're saved, right? Because of his love that we're sanctified. It's because of his love that we are going to be glorified. because of his love that we're finally going to be able to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Can you imagine what it will be like to love perfectly and to be loved perfectly? I mean, it's like thinking of eternity. You know how you start to think about it and your brain does this thing. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to have a perfect, subjective awareness of God's love for us. Oh, child of God, when we stand face to face in the presence of the lover of our souls, we will experience the unhindered, perfected fullness of triune love. And that's why the greatest of these is love. in closing, let me ask you, do you know the love of Christ? Oh, I hope you do. If you do, you're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, right? And you know, your love for him can be measured by how you love others. Men, how are you treating your wives, your children, wives, how you treat your husband, your children, and on and on it goes. So may I encourage you all to examine your heart. And if you're like me, you're going to find there's areas where you're deficient in love and cry out to the Spirit of God to bring conviction and repentance and help you to become more like Christ. And folks, the only way you're going to grow in love for the lover of your souls, is to spend time with him and to get to know him. And so I challenge you, learn what it is to feed upon his word, to spend time communing with him in prayer in your own personal pursuit of holiness. And as you do, you will experience a little sample of what you're going to experience in fullness when you enter into the presence of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. Humble us by them. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will bring conviction to anyone who does not know you through faith in Christ. Who would have to admit that they really don't love you. I pray that you will save them by your grace. Oh, Father, hear my cry. Save our babies, save our children. And help us all who know you to love you more by the power of your spirit. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, 
please visit our website at cbctn.org.